Welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. I'm Amy O'Neill Hauck. In this podcast from Edible Communities, a network of magazines published across the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, we celebrate all things local and sustainable in the food world. This episode is brought to you by Volpe Foods, a family company celebrating 120 years of crafting charcuterie from the freshest ingredients. Every slice is made with your family in mind. Find Volpe salami, prosciutto, and pancetta at your local grocery store. Today, we'll be talking fermentation with Sandor Alex Katz and Julia Skinner. Julia is a food historian, writer, and author of Our Fermented Lives, a history of how fermented foods have shaped cultures and communities. She's also the founder of Root, Atlanta's fermentation and food history company, and her work is regularly featured in local, national, and international publications, as well as in her own weekly food newsletter. She has a PhD in library science, cares for two wildlife habitats, and is a visual artist. Sandor Alex Katz is a fermentation revivalist. He is the author of five books, Wild Fermentation, The Art of Fermentation, The Revolution Will Not Be Microwaved, Fermentation as Metaphor, and his latest, Fermentation Journeys. Sandor's books, along with the hundreds of fermentation workshops he has taught around the world, have helped to catalyze a broad revival of the fermentation arts. A self-taught experimentalist who lives in rural Tennessee, the New York Times calls him one of the unlikely rock stars of the American food scene. As Julia mentions in Our Fermented Lives, early fermentation was likely spontaneous. Some rain interacts with drips of honey from a wild hive and becomes a mead-like liquid. Or, in my family lore, my Syrian grandmother always told me that yogurt, or laban, was accidentally invented because a traveler was carrying sheep or goat milk in a skin vessel, and heat and bacteria allowed it to ferment on the journey. Fermentation becomes a culinary practice when humans join in intentional conversation with the microbes that are all around us and add some creativity and ingenuity to the brews. Today, we'll chat about what excites them both looking back in history and forward into the future in the world of fermentation. Julia and Sander, welcome to Eat, Drink, Think. Thank you. So wonderful to be here with you. Great. As I was rereading each of your books together in preparation for today's chat, I was delighted to keep finding places where they intersect. It was fun to think of the works in conversation with one another, anticipating our conversation. So feel free to hop in at any point and ask questions of each other. I don't have to be the only one asking questions here. Our listeners might guess that this is not the first meeting for the two of you. The fermentation world is large in its microbial population and maybe pretty small in terms of authors and experts. In fact, Sandor, you wrote a foreword for Julia's book, and Julia, you speak in your book about how Sandor inspired you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So Sandor and I first met in 2018, and I came up for a fermentation residency up to Tennessee. And yeah, it was really wonderful to be in a space that felt like, you know, a wonderful place to learn, seeing a lot of other people interested in the same things that I am. And from there, we've just stayed in touch and we've worked together in various ways over the years. Right before the pandemic, Sandor came out and taught a workshop with me. And we've done a bunch of virtual stuff together, obviously, over the last couple of years. And I was very, very happy and honored when he agreed to write the foreword for my book. That's awesome. Sandor, your book is a travelogue of sorts. Through pictures and stories and recipes, you take the reader to places where you've explored, taught, and given speeches. As you've collected recipes that you and your colleagues share throughout the book, I wonder, how does your perspective as a traveler influence your work as a fermenter? Well, I think that you're describing my latest book, which is called Fermentation Journeys, which is specifically about fermented foods and beverages that I've learned about in my travels. You know, I've had the good fortune to be able to travel quite extensively throughout my life. And, you know, my thinking about fermentation actually was formed in part by travels that I had had prior to specifically becoming interested in fermentation. And specifically, when I was 23 years old, I spent a few months traveling in West Africa. And, you know, the first 
you know, non-commercial fermented beverages that I ever had were in West Africa. I drank palm wine and millet beer um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and some other kinds of beverages. And, um, you know, I wasn't really looking very closely at how any of these things were made, but I was impressed that, you know, they were clearly coming out of, you know, a, a small-scale cottage industry production. And then some years later, when I started getting interested in fermentation um, and I read through some of the hobby literature about beer and winemaking in the United States, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it just had such a strong emphasis on using chemicals to sanitize everything, using special equipment, uh, using chemicals actually to sort of kill the bacteria and yeast that are on the fruit that you might be fermenting with. And it just left me with all these questions. You know, how were these people who served me this beautiful palm wine in West Africa, you know, where were they getting their little tablets of potassium metabisulfate? And, um, you know, where was the brew store where they were buying yeast? And, you know, I didn't see anything that looked like a carboy or an airlock. So, you know, what kind of equipment were they using? And, you know, I would say that that experience, even though I didn't learn much about fermentation on that trip, caused me to be able to ask questions that I wouldn't otherwise have known to ask and to sort of investigate and try to learn about, um, you know, older, more traditional uh, uh, methods of, of, of fermentation. Um, uh, you know, most of the traveling that I've done in the last couple of decades has been places where I've been invited to teach about fermentation. Um, and, uh, you know, at this point I've taught in, I don't know, more than 25 countries. And, you know, that's been thrilling to get to travel to all of these places. And, you know, when I go places to teach about fermentation, of course, I'm not only teaching about fermentation. I'm also um, eating and drinking and being exposed to some of the sort of special um, uh, local fermented specialties. And, Frequently, my hosts have been people who share my my uh, passion for fermentation. So, you know, they have taken me to meet um, uh, 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 people who are practicing traditional ferments, indigenous communities where they're carrying on traditional fermentations, um, you know, producers who are making something special. So, um, um, you know, I've just had a really uh, 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 many extraordinary opportunities to learn. And, um, I, you know, I've known for years that I would write a book like this. Um, but, you know, I, I was so busy traveling and I had so many places that, that I was planning to go. And, you know, in, uh, uh, in early 2020, as Julia mentioned, I, I, I went down to um, Atlanta and participated in uh, – an event down there. Then I went to Australia when the pandemic began. I was actually teaching in Australia. And then, um, you know, after Australia, everything got canceled. I mean, you know, I was I had plans to go to Peru that year. I had plans to go to Taiwan that year. I had plans to go to Iceland that year. And so, you know, like everybody else, my, my, my plans all got um, uh, uh, canceled. Um, but suddenly I found myself with time at home and it just seemed like, well, it was the perfect opportunity to, you know, write this book that I've been thinking about. So, um, you know, that that's the story of, of, of fermentation journeys. I, you know, I would just really emphasize that it is not encyclopedic. You know, fermentation is practiced in really, really, you know, quirky, disparate ways everywhere in the world. And it's just a, an essential part of how people everywhere make effective use of whatever kinds of food resources they have available to them. And, um, you know, to me, it's endlessly fascinating. And, um, you know, everywhere that I go, um, you know, I get to sort of see new things and, and, and try new things and get inspired to come home and, um, you know, put some of those things into practice in, in my own kitchen. Your book is full of all sorts of non-culinary insights, and it makes me wonder were you a writer first or a fermenter first? Um, well, I, I was a writer first. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I would say I was, I was maybe your classic young person who has the vague idea of being a writer but doesn't have the slightest idea what to write about. And, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the jobs I had early in my career, I, I was in municipal government in New York City. But, you know, essentially what I was doing all day was writing. I actually wrote two children's books before I started writing about fermentation. I wrote a biography of Anne Frank and I wrote a biography of Whoopi Goldberg. Um, and, um, uh, uh, and, and then, you know, really fermentation began as a, as, as a, 
personal obsession, you know, first having to do with, you know, how to use the uh, abundance of the garden was what, you know, caused me to look in the joy of cooking and find out how to make sauerkraut in the first place. Uh, And then I just went totally, you know, ended up going down the rabbit hole and learning about country wines and yogurt making and miso making. But it was really very much a personal obsession um, for the first five years. But I sort of got a reputation among my friends. And then I got invited to teach a sauerkraut making workshop in 1998. And it was sort of Um, You know, out of that workshop, uh, you know, it was an annual event that I did in 1998, 99, 2000. But in 2001, I had a conflict and I was not able to make this annual event. So I spent a month writing all my fermentation recipes down. But it was in the process of doing that that I realized like, wow, this is interesting. This is something that I have a lot to say about. And this is something that I have a lot to learn about. And so, you know, as soon as I self-published this little zine so I could send it down and be present at this event that I was missing, um, you know, I started uh, 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 the process of, um, you know, trying to find a publisher that might be interested in, in um, uh, uh, you know, turning this into a larger book. Um, and, uh, you know, often when I reflect on, on writing wild fermentation, which was my first book that was published in 2003, I think of it like it was a channeling. It was like it was just the easiest book I have written, you know, uh, uh, ever. I mean, I just sort of like sat down and it just came out of me. And, um, you know, that that was very exciting. I mean, the books since then have been, you know, maybe a little bit more of a struggle. Well, it's still a favorite of mine for sure. It gave me permission to start fermenting. It's very engaging and inviting in that way. Julia, your book takes a historical approach to fermentation. You answer some burning questions like, which came first, beer or bread? I love the deep dives and asides into historical context throughout our fermented lives. And I wonder, what is something in fermentation history that really surprised you? Well, I think what you brought up of the example of beer and bread is that you know the the answer is that uh, we we don't have a clear answer right there's both of them kind of happened at once and you know i th- i think what i found most interesting about studying the history of fermentation was how much history we don't necessarily have access to anymore um how many you know how, how many different dishes have been lost or how many different dishes maybe are you know, not as well known now, or we don't have a clear sense of, um, you know, kind of how long they've been around. And so one of the big things that I really came away from it with was not only being surprised by how widespread it was. I mean, like Sanders' work, it's not encyclopedic. Like if I tried to make it encyclopedic, I would still be writing this. I would be writing it for the rest of my life. (laughs) But, you know, I tried to give some good coverage worldwide and, and to different dishes. And so, you know, I was surprised by the breadth, but also by just how much we don't know. So it's why I kind of wrap up the book, really, really encouraging people to document what they know, to really get into kitchens with people and really follow them around and see what they're doing and learn from them so that we do have those records. Absolutely. Um, I mean, one thing that I would just love to, 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 to interject is that, you know, there's no way that we can know anything about the early history of fermentation. I mean, the fact is that fermentation predates recorded history. And, uh, you know, many of the oldest surviving documents in different writing traditions make reference to fermented foods or beverages that were already important in those cultural contexts. Um, And, you know, archaeology has, uh, you know, some evidence, you know, the oldest archaeological evidence is about 10,000 years old, and it's pottery shards from a site in China. Um, But, you know, I would say that tells us about the history of pottery more than it tells us about the history of fermentation, because presumably the earlier vessels that people were using were things that are entirely biodegradable. So, um, um, you know, so we don't have remnants of them. And, you know, if we want to take the really, really long view, you know, the way a biologist would define fermentation is not so much in terms of foods and beverages, but more in terms of anaerobic metabolism, the production of energy without oxygen. And our cells are capable of fermentation. But the earliest life forms on Earth, you know, the earliest archaea and bacteria that, that emerged on the Earth, uh, you know, according to the, um, um, you know, sort of developing consensus among evolutionary biologists are all 
anaerobic organisms uh, 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 that would be described as fermenting organisms. So, you know, you really could say that, um, you know, in a very like long term way, fermentation gave rise to humanity more than, you know, humanity, you know, figured out how to practice fermentation. I love that. Yeah, and it was it was actually reading um, reading Sandor's kind of the intro to art of fermentation that really started getting my wheels turning around a lot of the stuff because he, you know, he spent so many years thinking about this. And I love Sandor. I love your your definition of fermentation as the transformative action of microbes because it allows our understanding to be broad, but it really focuses on, I think, maybe what's so special to us. Um, about fermentation and about our relationship with it. Sandra, when you mentioned the uh, containers that likely biodegraded, it made me think of the tempeh bowls that you share a photo of in, in your book. <laughs> you know, in this cafe in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, uh, you know, I was served soup and salad in these tempeh bowls. And of course, you know, I've never seen anything like that, but you can make tempeh, uh, um, you know, in a variety of shapes. And I thought that was, you know, such a great innovation. And, you know, I, I mean, in general, I think, you know, nobody's really invented any completely new fermented foods or beverages in, you know, hundreds or probably thousands of years. But there's, you know, so much uh, uh, innovation happening right now, um, you know, with the growing, um, um, you know, awareness and interest in fermentation. People are just trying a lot of things. And, um, you know, the tempeh bowls uh, that I feature in Fermentation Journeys and, and you know, the cafe really described in, in really clear ways what their process is for, for, for making them. But, um, you know, I think that's a really exciting innovation. And, um, you know, as, as more and more, um, uh, you know, people in the food industry just sort of like, uh, um, you know, try to think about concepts of zero waste. I mean, it's just such a, a beautiful, practical, elegant uh, uh, idea. Absolutely. Sandor, over a decade ago, I was lucky enough to attend a workshop with you where you captured my imagination with your use of fermentation as a metaphor. The relationship between human culture and microbial culture being just one example. And then you went on sometime later to produce a beautiful book about it, Fermentation as Metaphor, which combines microscopy, stunning microbial photography with your own essays. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of fermentation as metaphor and about how your ideas in that space might still be evolving? Well, sure. Um, um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, first of all, I would just point out, like, I didn't make this up. You know, it's 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 embedded in our language. And, um, you know, at the time when I started getting interested in fermentation and, you know, obsessed with fermentation, uh, you know, mostly that was in relation to food and beverage fermentation. But, you know, I, I started to notice with some regularity that I would see the word fermentation used in a metaphorical way. So, you know, I'd be some reading some article about, you know, some, you know, artist who had died, but, you know, they would say like, oh, you know, this artist began his career in the ferment of, you know, 1940s Greenwich Village or, or, or something like that. But, you know, basically like it, it, the word fermentation comes from Latin fervere, which means to boil. And it's because the bubbles that occur when liquids ferment you know, people could tell they were fermenting because they were producing bubbles, the same way you can tell that a liquid is boiling. But in the English language, we started to use the word fermentation to describe any kind of bubbly, excited phenomenon. So, you know, you can have, uh, you know, artistic ferment, musical ferment, political ferment, cultural ferment, linguistic ferment, uh, spiritual ferment. I mean, fermentation is something that can happen in any realm of our lives. And I, you know, I just think that this is, um, uh, you know, super uh, uh, exciting idea and a, and a, and a very, um, um, you know, relevant and uh, a useful metaphor for, for, for all kinds of things. And, um, you know, I've mostly been focused on food, but I think, you know, if we look at the big picture of, you know, how food is produced, you know, in our, you know, contemporary world and in our country, um, um, you know, it, it desperately demands a, a, a transformation and change. And so, you know, I think that, you know, thinking about, you know, how people who are becoming more interested and in a 
aware of food, you know, we, we can encourage people to move that beyond like, you know, flavors and nutrients by, you know, thinking about how they can be part of, you know, creating a ferment of, of our food system and, and, and becoming, you know, agents of transformation, like, you know, almost like becoming starter cultures that, you know, sort of help to initiate um, um, uh, uh, changes that obviously require, you know, more than a single person's uh, uh, activity, but it has to start from somewhere. And there are all of these movements that sort of need more energy in order to be able to sort of reach their full transformative potential. Yeah. And I think both of you actually talk about and point to how fermentation is maybe one aspect of where, um, local communities can take control of the food that they're producing. Um, the microbes are local. They're using excess food perhaps to preserve it, which, you know, is taking care of what's nearby. Um, Julia, do you want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, something I think um, that really struck me early on in learning about fermentation was kind of this idea of fermentation as a democratic process, right? Nobody is ever able to own the bacteria that are going to help you make sauerkraut. You know, you can own specific strains of, you know, of different things, um, particular, you know, industrially produced brewing yeasts and things like that, but you, you can't own fermentation. And so it makes it so that it's, it's a way that's very, you know, very powerful for us to transform our food and to, to do that in a way that nobody can ever take away from us. Um, you know, the, the microbes we work with are all around us. And so that, I think that's a really powerful metaphor for, you know, how it can work in community spaces. You know, we, we can use this incredible resource that we can't even see, but it brings so much to, um, you know, to our food and allows us to really make some great nutrition, uh, nutritional stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, I feel like there's so many directions that you can go with, um, with it, but Sandra, I'd be curious to see kind of where, where your mind goes with that immediately too. Yeah, sure. Well, um, I, I mean, I think that, you know, fermentation is such an essential part of how people make effective use of food resources everywhere. Um, um, you know, very little of what most people actually eat day to day are the raw products of agriculture. It's all the things we can turn the raw products of agriculture into. And, um, you know, one of the major ways that people transform the raw products of agriculture into the actual foods and beverages that people eat are through fermentation. And so, you know, when we, when we talk about, um, uh, um, you know, uh, um, supporting local food production, when we talk about sort of expanding our sort of capacity for food production in each region, you know, which really I think is, is you know, the only route to, uh, you know, any kind of food security. Um, you know, it's not just about growing things. It's not just about farming. It's also about, you know, creating, um, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, oil presses and grain mills and, um, um, you know, uh, breweries and bakeries and, um, and, and kraut makers. And, you know, most of, most of the United States is, you know, temperate climates with limited growing seasons. And so, you know, if we want to be be serious about being able to sort of feed ourselves throughout the entire year. Well, fermentation is very, um, uh, you know, important strategy for, um, you know, any kind of uh, uh, food preservation. So, you know, I think that, um, um, you know, it just it just goes hand in hand with all of the other strategies for, um, uh, you know, relocalizing our food. And, when you know, when I talk about relocalizing food, I mean, I don't mean it in a dogmatic way that like any of us needs to, you know, exclusively eat food that's produced within 100 or 250 or some number of miles from where we live. I mean that, you know, our food system is mostly organized around foods which are grown in our region. And then, you know, I mean, everybody benefits if we can supplement that with, you know, special treats that come from further away places where they can grow different kinds of things than, than what we can grow. But, you know, I think the pandemic, I think the war in Ukraine, I mean, you know, sort of every, you know, every crisis brings new illustrations of how fragile our sort of
of system of um, you know central production and global distribution of food is. And um, you know, I really you know very passionately believe that you know for for everybody's security, you know, we need to be expanding our local and regional capacity for producing food. And um, um, you know that that's agriculture largely, but it's also all of these other you know ways of you know processing food, including fermentation. Absolutely. Uh, in both of your books, you each do a beautiful job of recognizing cultural, that is human cultural influence that have, due to colonization, been widely overlooked. Julia, can you talk about some of the challenges as well as the joys of recording recipes and stories from throughout history and throughout the world in a way that rings true? I mean, I think I think the the thing that was the greatest joy is that you 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 can't centralize yourself in that conversation. You know, you very much are there to learn from other people, and I think it's you know, often when we write about food, it can be easy to centralize our own experiences and our own, you know, I love this food for this reason, things like that. And, you know, when you're talking about the global history of fermentation, of course, you can't do that. Um, And so I think, you know, I think having the opportunity to just learn from so many people was really a big part of what, what I found was very joyful. But then, I mean, just like with any food history that you study, I mean, and I found the same thing when I wrote my book on afternoon tea, where I would get so, so upset and disheartened with like some of the ways that people's, you know, people's heritage around food had been just completely disregarded and how, you know, we had lost all these stories and things and would sometimes step away um, just for like an hour or so and then come back to it. But yeah, it was, you know, I mean, I think, describing it in terms of both it being a joyful process of, you know, learning and discovery and hearing things from all these people and, you know, and making a point to interview a bunch of people. I think that was a lot of fun too, because I got to ask questions and have back and forth. Um, That was really great. But yeah, then also seeing just, just how, how little this particular way of knowing has been maybe uh, prioritized by people who are creating documents through a lot of history. Sandra, do you want to comment at all about that, about telling stories that maybe come from underrepresented communities? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think that, you know, one of the realities of, 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 of fermentation is that, um, you know, a lot of the fermented foods and beverages that are traditional in different places have been stigmatized. Um, and so, you know, in people's migration, uh, 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 in, 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 in people's migrations, like, you know, they might be bringing these foods with them, but they learn very quickly, like not to share them too widely because people might, you know, find the smell offensive, the idea offensive. Um, and, um, you know, for, for instance, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of this like wonderful woman who I met in Melbourne, Australia, um, 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 uh, uh, who is um, um, from uh, Nagaland in the very far northeastern part of India. Um, and she uh, uh, came to my talk and gave me a gift of uh, a, a Naga fermented food called Akuni. And uh, Akuni is, uh, you know, very similar to natto, the Japanese fermented uh, uh, soybeans, except they're smoked and dried and used in that form as, as, as a seasoning. But Dolly is a, the, the, this Naga land woman who I met, Dolly Kaikon, she's, she's a, a, an anthropologist. And, um, you know, she actually has been studying through an anthropological lens uh, um, some of the fermented foods of of her homeland. And, um, you know, she uncovered all of these crazy stories about, you know, Naga land people who migrated to Delhi and other big cities in India and, you know, would, would, you know, sort of 
faced discrimination because of the smell of the foods that they were preparing because of this traditional fermented seasoning. And, um, you know, she even found stories of people calling the police because they were offended by the smells coming out of their neighbor's apartments. And, you know, this echoes stories that I've heard from, uh, you know, Korean people who migrated to the U.S. And, um, you know, today in the U.S., I mean, you know, kimchi is trending. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, kimchi was not trending like this. And a lot of, you know, Korean kids really learned to, you know, sort of beg their mothers not to send them to school with to, with with kimchi. And, um, um, you know, there, there was sort of a cloud of shame sometimes around traditional fermented foods. One of the, um, you know, really best books about fermented foods that I've encountered um, is by a, a Sudanese biochemist, Hamid Dirar. It's the Indigenous Fermented Foods of Sudan. And, um, you know, you know in, in, in North America, to some extent, you know, a lot of people have the idea that, you know, sort of fermentation is, you know, something of interest to, you know, sort of very affluent people. Um, you know, the story that, that Hamid Dirar tells in Sudan is exactly the opposite, that, you know, when people migrate into cities, they typically leave the fermented foods and beverages of the villages that they come from behind because, you know, they associate those, you know, uh, uh, those smelly foods with the less sophisticated life of the peasants in the countryside. And that, you know, sort of their, their, their new sophisticated lifestyle in a big city doesn't, doesn't have room for that. And so, you know, these foods that are really born of necessity, you know, people sort of leave them behind when they sort of move into this sort of like new, potentially more, more affluent life. So, I mean, I think, I think, you know, the, the, you know, the, 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 the culture of fermentation, fermented foods and beverages is, is fascinating to me. And, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of, you know, complex dynamics at, at, at play. And, you know, in general, I would say that when I have expressed interest in people's fermented, fermentation traditions, you know, they've been excited to share them. I mean, um, you know, just because you're in Alaska, I mean, I'll, I'll just, um, you, you know, like talk about, you know, this, um, um, uh, you know, a couple of Clinket people who I met in uh in in southeast alaska but like you know they they were really eager to to sort of share their ferments and you know had the general feeling that like you know for hundreds of years settlers to alaska had not had the slightest interest in you know their you know their fermentation traditions which you know had served them so well in making effective use of the food resources available to them you know in their climate there so i mean my general experience is people are, you know, excited to, 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 to share their, um, uh, you know, traditional practices with, with people who are uh, uh, interested in it. But, but I think, you know, of, 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 of course, you know, how, you know, how people's stories are represented, how people's recipes are, are, are used, um, you know, is, is um, you know, that you have to be, you know, you have to have a lot of sensitivity and, 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 and really let people tell their stories and not, you know, sort of interpret it as your own story. Yeah, absolutely. Julia, I'm taking a slightly different tack. I'm curious what you think about new high-tech uses of fermentation, for instance, in lab-grown animal-based foods. I heard a radio interview recently where a spokesperson from Blue Seafoods tried to make lab-grown seafood sound homey and familiar by saying something like, it's just fermentation and people have been doing that for thousands of years. Well, you know, I think it's interesting because it shows it shows how, I guess, how versatile our relationship with fermentation is and maybe you know maybe by saying that is also an affirmation of how you know how familiar it really is to us you know that said i'm i personally you know i don't know if i would if if i would find it as delicious as you know other not lab grown meat but i don't know i haven't had it maybe i would um but it's you know it's we're in a moment where people have the ability to take fermentation in these directions that hasn't ever happened before you know we haven't had labs with these kinds of equipment for hundreds of years and so 
you know, I think it's it's less about, you know, if I if I personally find it to be an appealing way to ferment stuff, which, you know, I I prefer to just throw things in a jar and kind of, you know, let let the natural microbes do their thing, but I think it's a sign that fermentation and our relationship to it are continue, going to continue to be strong and are going to continue to evolve over time. And this is one example of that happening. Sandor, in one of my favorite passages from your book, you quote some fermenters as saying, as preservers, we are in essence pickers of moments. First, we must find and choose that moment in the vegetable's life, in its taste, texture, and color that we want to preserve. Then, after the vegetable is processed, we must observe and capture a moment when the flavors and textures of the vegetable have been preserved and enhanced by the technique, a moment of balance between preservation and transformation. This idea elevates fermentation a bit beyond recipe, doesn't it? I'm curious if you found this transformation extends beyond the ferments and into the lives of the fermenters. What have you noticed in your travels and teaching? Well, I mean, first of all, let me say that 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 that, that quote is not from me, but there, that that that's from a couple of pages that were written by um, uh, um, the, uh, the the cultured pickle shop in uh, in 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 Berkeley, California, and um, uh, uh, Alex and Kevin, who, uh, who who've been running that business for I don't know at least twenty five years, um, um, you know, are just some of the um, you know most uh, uh, outstanding. Uh, uh, you know, fermenters and specifically vegetable fermenters that I that I have encountered um, um, in my travels, and they were kind enough to describe their process for kasuzuke, which is um, um, you know making uh, um, using uh, uh, the residue of sake making kasu, which is the sort of spent rice. You know, along with the koji enzymes, uh, uh, along with bacteria and yeast, that's the residue of sake making. So, so you know, they mix salt and sugar in with that, and then bury vegetables and ferment them for for a very long period of time. And I, I think that their, you know, their description of that is really. Um, I mean, it's really beautiful and, and 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 vivid, but, you know, sort of along with this idea of like, you know, fermentation as metaphor. I mean, I think that, you know, their, their ideas about sort of balance between sort of, you know, the essence of the thing and, and what it can become on, under fermentation. I mean, sure, you could you could sort of, you know, apply that 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 kind of balance to, um, um, you know, all, all sorts of uh, 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 different situations. And, um, you know, certainly it comes into play in lots of different um, styles of, of, of fermentation. It's something that I explored a lot, actually, when I was just in Alaska, too. Um, we did a lot when I was... Um, teaching with folks and foraging with folks. We did a lot of stuff thinking about how we can use fermentation and all of the wild foods that are available in Alaska this time of year, um, rose hips and fireweed and all of these wonderful things and how we can take that to not only, not only to have that balance as Sandor described, but also to kind of capture that moment too and kind of the how how you capture the flavor of the moment in a balanced way using fermentation and wild foods. And I think that, you know, w with respect to fermentation, I mean, time is everything. And, um, um, you know, a, a recipe can never give you an exact length of time that a fermentation will take because, you know, so much is dependent on temperature, but even more is dependent on the subjective nature of our palates and what kinds of flavors uh, you like. And, you know, whatever the fermentation byproduct, whether it's alcohol or lactic acid or acetic acid or various alkaline uh, byproducts, they, they accumulate over time. And, um, you know, ultimately, the, the, you know, the art of fermentation is the, you know, the subjective judgment of, you know, when something is at its peak. And sometimes you don't know when something has passed its peak until it has passed its peak. Um, um, and that, you know, that, that, that's a lot of the, um, uh, um, you know, the, the, the art of it. And, and, you know, one of the things that makes those particular people, Alex and Kevin, like just so good at what they do is that, you know, they are utterly obsessive about tasting everything every day and, you know, picking things out at their peak. Excellent. Yeah, I wondered a bit about that and how 
um, how maybe your students might feel apprehension about approaching recipe that way in which they're not a lot able to really follow. I mean, they can follow the instructions, right? But then they actually have to use their judgment. And I know that gives people pause sometimes. It also is a challenge. I'm sure that Sander has encountered this too, of actually writing the recipes and, you know, having an editor be like, okay, how many days does this sit? And you're like, well, I don't know, like a week or two. And they're like, no, how many days? <laughs> and you're like, I can't, I can't tell you. <laughs> so that's kind of another interesting layer to it as well. I think there's a bit of freedom that both of you give in the idea that, that for the most part, with some exceptions and some ferments, all that can go wrong is you lean into the realm of maybe unpalatability, you know, like, so for a lot of things, a lot of what's in the book, we're talking about, you taste until you like it and then it's done. Right. And, uh, and that is the kind of permission that I think that cooks probably can use as they get used to following things by rote. Yeah, I mean, some some people really like to be told exactly what to do. And some people, you know, appreciate a more open-ended approach. And, um, uh, uh, you know, my first book, Wild Fermentation, was recipes in a traditional format. I mean, I'm always trying to encourage people to, you know, to, to, to not take the specific proportions that a recipe is set in stone. And, you know, if you love garlic, use more garlic. If it tastes like it's not salty enough, add more salt, but, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, pe people need to empower themselves to, you know, sort of adjust these general guidelines to, you know, to, 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 to their own palates. But then with my second book, Art of Fermentation, I just decided that I was going to abandon the recipe format altogether. And that's just a, it's a narrative format. And reading that book, you could learn how to make lots of different kinds of foods and beverages, but like, I'm not going to tell you how much sugar to put in. I mean, I might give you a, you know, a range of proportions that I've tried or seen people work with. Um, um, you know, I might give you a range of, uh, uh, you know, different seasoning combinations. Um, but, you know, I'm just not going to say, like, you know, uh, three quarters of a teaspoon of salt and, um, um, you know, uh, a, a, a teaspoon of, of, of caraway seeds. Like, you know, I'll just give you ideas and you run with it. And, you know, uh, um, um, you know, looking at the at the, you know, let's say the reviews on Amazon.com of that book, you know, a lot of people, you know, are like, I thought this was going to be a book of recipes and there's no recipes in it. Like some people desperately want the recipes. Um, you know, in terms of permission, and, and you mentioned earlier on that, you know, one of the, th Amy, that one of the things that you sort of appreciated about, about, you know, both of our books was this idea of like giving, giving permission. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing that I found with fermentation and one of the things that made me interested in really devoting myself to fermentation education is that, um, you know, so many people have, um, projected all of the anxiety that they've been taught to have about bacteria onto the idea of fermentation. And so, you know, from the first time I taught a sauerkraut making workshop, I remember there was a young woman like staring at this jar with a worried expression on her face. And, you know, what, 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 her, the big question on her mind was, how can I be sure I have good bacteria growing in this jar and not some dangerous bacteria that might make me sick or even kill somebody? And it, it's just so widespread for people to project this anxiety onto the idea of fermentation, you know, when in fact, as you just alluded to, you know, fermentation is extremely safe. You know, generally when you ferment a food, it is safer than that food was before you ferment it. Um, and, um, you know, fermentation is a strategy for safety as much as it's a strategy for preservation or, you know, for digestibility or for good flavor or anything. I mean, these, these practices would not have survived the test of time if they were Russian roulette. You know, they are extremely safe. Um, and yet, you know, because we've been taught to be so suspicious of bacteria and because people have generalized worries about 
preserved food without even really having a clear idea of what they ought to be worried about. You know, I find that, you know, half of what I do is just, you know, reassuring people that 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 it's going to be okay and trying to explain, you know, why the fermentation makes the food safe. And and you know, most fermented foods involve the production of acids or alcohol. And, you know, the very small range of bacteria that we would describe as pathogenic that could, you know, give us food poisoning or, you know, other kinds of illnesses cannot survive in an acidic or an alcoholic environment. So, you know, the reason fermentation works so well as a strategy for safety is that it creates an environment that's very inhospitable to the kinds of organisms that, that, that we worry about. Yeah. And there's something I wanted to say about the um, about the format of art of fermentation, too, because I remember when I first encountered it, one of the things that really excited me about that book as a food historian was thinking about the actual format of the recipes, because we didn't have this ingredient list and list of steps format until late 1800s, early 1900s. That's relatively new. And so... I really liked that Sandor kind of was um, intentionally or not, but embracing this, like this, the older traditional form of how we write and think about food and how we pass that knowledge on. And so I remember encountering that and being like, yes, this is somebody I want to learn from. He's, he's got like, he's, he thinks about food in a way that I, that really resonates with me. I think it's true that the, sometimes the less information you provide, the more freedom people start to take. And uh, Julia, that kind of makes me think about um, how you mentioned in the beginning of your book that you worked as a fermenter at a restaurant. And um, that just sounds like a job that it just sounds very fun. And so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. To me, anyway, it sounds pretty fun. Maybe it was a lot of pressure. I don't know. Um, and what, so could you talk a little bit about that? Maybe what was your favorite part or do you miss restaurant work? I I love restaurants very much. I'm happy to not be working in them anymore. Um, I I am always in awe of my restaurant friends and their stamina and their um, ability to run on fumes. Um, it is I I prefer to sit at my computer or in front of a piece of paper and write things and be in my home kitchen and cook and teach classes. That's much more my speed. Um, but that job was nice because if you're like if you're going to have a restaurant job, that's about the most chill one you can have because it's a ferment like it's you're fermenting food. I can't be making this stuff, you know, and having it ready the same day. So there kind of was only so much pressure that really I was allowed to feel in that space because you can't make the ferment go faster than the ferment is going to go. Um, and so it was interesting because when I started, we had all of these big plans for how, um, you know, how we were going to develop this big fermentation program and do all of this stuff. And over time, we kind of ended up narrowing it down to a few different things that the restaurant used consistently. And then I experimented with other stuff kind of on a smaller scale and then also did all of their quick pickles and, Eventually, I, I was only there a handful of months. Um, I was doing end-of-life care at the same time and so ended up letting the restaurant work go um, so that I could focus on that. But, yeah, it was it was nice because, you know, I was doing things I loved and it was fun. I loved um, the chefs that I worked with were really great. Um, it was actually um, my best friend was the one of the chefs there and was the one who got me the job. And so we got to see each other and, it, you know, good time. So yeah, that's. I think that was a good place to kind of leave restaurant work. I'd worked in restaurants prior to that, but that was a nice kind of like up note to leave it on. Be like, oh, I, I did the thing I wanted to do in restaurants. Now I can say I've done it. Now I can kind of like put a little bow on that and, you know, set it to the side. Excellent. Well, if we ever go back to creating ferments for people to eat on the fly, you should let us all know. We'll make our way down to Atlanta for your new shop. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Julia, two of the things I'm most excited to try from your book are the fermented pastes and the sawins. Mm -hmm. And Sander, in fermentation journeys, it's the sweet potato beverage chicha. Um, and all three of these things are things that I haven't tried before. 
As we wrap up, I'm wondering from each of you, is there anything you haven't fermented yet that you would like to try, you know you'd like to try? And, you know, you can take turns. Julia, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things. I mean, I think I could spend the rest of my life making and eating ferments and not have had them all. I mean, there's, you know, all kinds of different fermented fish dishes. Like I had skata for the first time when I was in Iceland last year, and that was really wonderful. But there's so many other different dishes like that that I haven't had. You know, I've had natto, but I haven't had, you know, some of the other similarly fermented things like the dish that you were describing, Sandor. I haven't had that yet. A lot of different fermented foods out there. I haven't had palm wine yet, which makes me very sad. I've had many fermented alcohols, but I haven't because I haven't been to West Africa yet. I haven't had that there. Sandor? What I would just say is like anything we could possibly eat can be fermented. And nothing can be fermented in only one singular way. There's always a lot of different possible ways that anything can be fermented. And, you know, generally people ferment what is abundant in their environments. People, for the most part, are not fermenting, you know, precious things that come from far away, which doesn't mean that you can't. I mean, you know, I live in a very landlocked place. I live in Tennessee. I live hundreds of miles from, you know, the nearest coastal area. Areas and, you know, it's not easy to, you know, sort of find good fish here. But I mean, I'm fascinated by, you know, fish fermentation traditions. I mean, everywhere. I mean, you know, in Alaska, I learned about exciting fish fermentation traditions. I was in the Faroe Islands earlier this year where they do some really wonderful things with fish. You know, I love some of the Southeast Asian ways that they're fermenting fish, but I've had very little opportunity to you know, try these things myself. And I I mean, I would love to have more access to fish and to, you know, sort of get to experiment more widely in the realm of fermenting fish. But I mean, in general, I would just say like, you know, like I love how expansive fermentation is. And one of the things I've been making regularly is a Chinese style of fermenting vegetables in a perpetual brine. So, you know, I have this jar here of pao tsai, but, you know, the brine I started, you know, three and a half years ago. And I just keep on, you know, adding more vegetables to it. Periodically, I have to replenish salt into the brine. Periodically, I add more seasonings. But I take, you know, very common things, you know, things either coming out of my garden or that, you know, I get at the local farmer's market or, you know, even that I get at the supermarket. You know, I'll take, um, you know, cabbages and radishes and other very common vegetables. But I give them a really, you know, unusual flavor by fermenting them you know, in this, you know, sort of Chinese spiced brine with Sichuan peppercorns and black cardamom and other kinds of seasonings that like, you know, are a little bit, you know, out of the ordinary, you know, they're not, it's not like the the Mount Olive pickle uh, 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 seasoning. So I love that. And, you know, I just love continuing to learn. I'm actually going in about a week and a half to Iceland. I look forward to uh, uh, trying some Icelandic uh, ferments there. And then I'm going there from there to uh, the Arctic part of Norway. Well, it's good that both of you still find your curiosity peaked and you have a lot more to say and a lot more that you want to find out about fermentation. And thank you very much. It's great to see that there's just so much that both of you are still, your curiosity is peaked. There's so much that you still want to learn and try and find out about in the world of fermentation. I appreciate you joining us, Sandor and Julia. It was so nice to talk with you both. Wonderful to get to talk to you too. Thank you so much. We've been listening to authors Julia Skinner and Sandor Elix Katz. Thank you for joining us today at Eat, Drink, Think. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to pick up your local Edible magazine. You can find show notes for today's episode at ediblecommunities.com.